0: Hello and welcome to Here Now, a Whitechapel Gallery podcast that delves into the stories behind the exhibitions on view at the gallery here in the heart of East London. Each episode invites a curator to be in conversation with artists, collaborators and other thinkers about the works and themes explored in the displays, giving you special access to the ideas that shape the artworks. My name is Jane Scarth, Curator of Public Programs, introducing you to today's episode featuring Whitechapel Gallery Chief Curator Lydia Yee in conversation with artist Theaster Gates about his new exhibition at the Gallery, A Clay Sermon, an exposition into the significance of clay and its material and spiritual legacies, explored through his own work and that of other potters from throughout history. We also hear from historian Jason Young about the work of David Drake, whose work features in the exhibition. Drake was an enslaved man whose pottery, engraved with poetry, was an act of resistance in the 19th century American South. The exhibition is free to view in galleries 1, 8 and 9 and is on display from 29 September 2021 until 9 January 2022.
1: Hello, Theaster. I wanted to start by saying thank you so much for making such a beautiful exhibition for Whitechapel Gallery. We're very proud of it, and we can't wait for you to come see it. I wanted to give people a little bit of an idea of what they'll be seeing. And I mean, I'm sure you picture this in your head too, but it's essentially three groupings of work or three sections of the exhibition. It opens on our ground floor gallery. This part of the exhibition provides an overview of your clay-based works. And it ranges from early small wheel thrown vessels to large afro mingue sculptures. It looks at the significance and history of clay and its material and spiritual legacies. Upstairs, we have your amazing new film. Um, It's an honor to debut A Clay Sermon, which you filmed last winter while in residence at the Archie Bray Foundation for Ceramic Arts. Finally, we have a suite of recent works from the past two years that you've made both in your studio and at the Archie Bray Residency. It's in a beautiful, light-filled space, and we see new combinations of vessels, some of them tarred, some of them unadorned, some of them um, glazed, and they sit on different plinths that you've hand milled. They're made out of stone and wood. So it's a really terrific formal space. But I think the ground floor galleries maybe in some ways lay the groundwork um, for the journey up the stairs, through the pilgrimage in the film, and then on to the beautiful vessels um, in our upstairs gallery. I wanted to start by asking you about this relationship in your work um, between clay and religion. Um, I think quite early on, you thought to do a show about clay. Um, In fact, I remember having a conversation with you when you first... I believe it was in a lunch during the 2015 um, Venice Biennale. I had just started at Whitechapel and you had recently shown Soul Manufacturing Corporation, a pottery studio that you set up in the back of Whitechapel Gallery. Um, can you talk a little bit about your why you wanted to do this show on clay and what you were thinking at that time?
2: Well, Lydia, first, thank you so much for your um, curatorial leadership and your care in presenting this show, it, it was a lot of work. Um, there were a lot of parts, and there were a lot of collaborators, and I think that you handled those relationships with great care, and I'm really, really thankful to you and your team, Cameron Foote, um, to Chris from the preparator team, for all of the people um, at, at Whitechapel who worked so hard to help me do that, uh, along with my collaborators and maker friends. There's a lot I could say um, related to your question, but I think for me, if, if before talking about religion, I could talk about the origins of one's artistic practice. In, in this case, I've been very fortunate over my art career to have opportunities where I could make almost anything that I wanted, that I, I felt no boundaries with material specificity, with um, forms of uh, relatability and relational activity, um, the creation of temporary companies, I've done whatever I wanted. And I, I felt like this opportunity at Whitechapel was a chance for me to actually get back to a kind of origin story within my own practice, but also for me, an origin story of Um, contemporary art or sculpture, that for me I really believe that ceramics is a kind of originating material that um, precedes other kinds of artistic activity, that it's in a way the beginning of the plastic arts because it allowed uh, you know, you could take this material you pinch it, it grows Uh, you stretch it apart you coil it, you roll it And it's a way of um, channeling the earth um, and and making the earth do lots of other things. And I think then from there, other kinds of artistic practices grew. At least in my body or in my practice, it went from clay to other materials. But I also think that that's been the trajectory for lots of people. So on one level, the project was to first honor and acknowledge the truth of ceramics in my life. Um, In a way that was not trying to be bombastic or um, overwhelming or trying to make any new inroads into the contemporary. It was actually trying to revert back to something quite familiar and simple and home-like. And so in, in some ways that origin story already feels like a kind of interesting spiritualism. That it had no pretenses It had no special airs. And the work, to me, is really attempting to be stripped down, sparse, quiet. As quiet as I can be. So I feel like the beginning of the spirituality or spiritualness is what clay brings out of itself and then what it brings out of me, right? And that's not about religion. It's not actually about God. It's about how the material world already has rooted in it power and energy, and that power and energy is important to me. Now, I decided to layer on top of that the truth of one of my other origin stories, which is the black church and the ways in which growing up in a missionary Baptist church and being an artist, allowed me to then complicate both of those singular narratives so that I became an artist reflecting on the Baptist church and that had its own form or I could give shape to a new form that ultimately became a Clay Sermon.
1: Hey, Esther, I think that's a really nice way to kind of get into your social practice. You made a very um, nice comment, I think it was during a TED Talk, where you were talking about uh, the art of being a potter, that it was very humble. But at the same time, as a potter, you learn how to shape the world. So I'm wondering, um, you've, you've studied ceramics, you've studied religious studies, but also urban planning. How did you bring all these things together? Um, and how did it shape your approach to materials? Not only clay, but you've worked with brick, you've worked with other forms of clay.
2: Well, Lydia, it seemed that um, initially, they were all very separate projects, that they were like three disciplines that I was interested in, and I segmented them, not really compartmentalized them, but they didn't seem to be related initially. So when I was studying planning, I was a planner. you know, And, and then with ceramics, I thought I would be a planner and a hobby potter. And it happened that my, um, you know, if I felt anything like a calling, maybe if I wasn't studying planning, I would have studied religion or something. And so they were like interest sets. They were not trying to create a transdisciplinary or interdisciplinary thought. And it took some years before that started to happen. I think I would make a plug here for how wonderful it was that the art world wasn't interested in me in my early 20s and I wasn't interested in it. I was just a guy who liked to read and I made pots in the evenings and on Saturdays at my little studio and then I you know, I no longer went to church but I was very interested in religious music and I was interested in spirituality and, and interested in my own interrogation of the religious things that I had been taught. So I was kind of a questioner in my 20s and 30s, right? But what started to happen uh, as I thought about um, urbanism, and that word came to be, I thought that maybe there was a way that the arts could play a role in the transformation of communities. And, And I was thinking in very broad strokes, like the importance of Um, art spaces, artist run spaces, community spaces, but then also the power of public art and the importance of like the opera and ballet. And and I was thinking a lot about ways of funding these things. And so it started out like uh, I was thinking more of my policy hat on about the relationship between urban planning and the arts. Big A with an S, not contemporary art, not conceptual art, I was thinking about the arts. And then I think what happened was that um, over time, my belief in my own artistic uh, practice made me think that art could do something that urbanism couldn't, and art could be even bigger in terms of a platform, that there was this chance that I could say, you know, what if I were to bring um, this interest in spirituality and this knowledge of urban planning under big a art no s not a sector but a calling what if art was actually the calling and i was supposed to do all these things through that function And that's when I think I started to think about Dorchester projects. I started doing things um, where I was bringing these materials from my neighborhood into the museum. And then the Whitney happened uh, in 2010 where I I took over the courtyard uh, at what is now the Breuer. Uh, uh, And then in 2012 of being part of Documenta with Carolyn Christoph Bergiev. And and those two moments were solidifying moments where art could absorb the city instead of the city using the arts. And and I think that is really where things started to pivot for me where urban planning became the technical skill set that allowed art to get bigger.
1: I think one of the things that are, is really eye-opening in the exhibition is how expansive your approach to clay is. And part of this is um, described, or part of it is articulated through the objects you've chosen from the Victoria and Albert Museum collection and other private and public collections. You've made a series of vitrines and juxtapose examples from your own work um, with these historic objects, some of them going back 2,000 years, um, a brick from China, to uh, another vessel, um, but also objects from Iran and uh, and Korea. Um, And then we have another case that focuses on the relationship of clay to global colonial trade. So we see clay as commodity, ceramics as commodity. We see items from the Staffordshire potteries that were made, some of them deeply racist and offensive, um, but other objects very redeeming, like Josiah Wedgwood's medallion that advocated for the abolition of slavery I'm wondering if you can talk us through a little bit of why you chose some of these historic objects and also how they relate to your own interests and your own collecting. Um, You've put some of your items from your own collections in these cases as well.
2: When I was a younger maker, I probably would have said that clay is an extremely poetic material. What I meant by that um, then was that there was a tremendous amount of metaphor that could be taken from the material. And you could, you know, if if you know enough about the chemistry of ceramics, you could find yourself giving a sermon about clay and the human condition pretty easily. But now I feel like, uh, and especially as you walk through the ground floor of, of Whitechapel, um, clay is not only poetic, it's also instructive. It's historical. It's um, uncanny. It's... Uh, It's comparative. You know, it it has the ability to allow you to understand all these things about um, culture. And for me, I think looking at um, the amazing excellence of a porcelain work caught inside of a Chinese sagger, or looking at a brick that is um, with the stamp of Nebuchadnezzar or um, thinking about a, a British... Makers like Michael Cardew or Bernard Leach, um, or the encounter with Japan, or at least the East in a generic and perverted sense, the British encounter with the East, and then the fallout of varying forms of tea within British tradition, but also the tea ceremony um, in Japan and um, kind of the relationship between Japanese imperialism in Korea, that there are all these, there are all these stories and all of these amazing histories that I became more interested in the single material. And that the material kept revealing to me more and more stories. And so I think that what happens is then those stories started to translate into my own uh, creative empowerment. To make the material say more, not just poetic, but sometimes bombastic, sometimes fantastic, you know, uh, sometimes instructional and didactic, that there are times when I'm really trying to get at what does it mean for me to have been a young African-American presenting as a potter uh, in Japan, and then those first encounters with extreme Japanese technique, and feeling like I didn't know anything. I felt like an imposter because I was in the presence of people who had been the ninth or 10th generational maker in their family, and they had a tremendous amount of discipline and skill around it. And I thought, this is something that I really want to have as part of my life. And so then there were questions of um, artistic assimilation, appropriation, what I call transmission, and feeling as if I'm as much an emerging Japanese potter as I am an advanced contemporary artist. Or that I'm at the beginning of my ceramic journey at almost 50 years old, and I cannot say yet that I know how to make a good pot. And maybe I'm a great workshop leader And it's possible that some of the participants in my workshop, some of my staff, they are probably better makers than I am because they spend more dedicated hours per day making. And so then you get into questions of economy and ecology. And in my case, what does it mean for me to be a person who believes deeply in philosophy and I can share big ideas with my staff who believes deeply in ceramics? And we move back and forth between making and thinking. And then that then translates into other forms. And I feel like the exhibition gives you a sense of the breadth of that journeying and questioning
1: The Esther, this past winter, I think it was in January and February, you undertook an important residency at the Archie Bray Foundation for Ceramic Arts in Montana. Um, This place set up in part by Peter Volkos and Rudy Audio, um, two important American ceramic artists. Um, You not only made an incredible body of work there, in part based on Volkos, but you made this terrific new film, I wonder if you could start telling us about this residency, what it meant for you to work there, and also um, a little bit about your new film, A Clay Sermon.
2: Absolutely. Um, Well, first, I want to say that, you know, one of the benefits, I think, of being, uh, you know, an artist, um, I can call myself now a mature artist, is that um, there are moments when organizations like the Archie Bray reach out and say, hey, we would love to have you be present here. And I think Archie Bray, they were challenged by the truth of Black Lives Matter, George Floyd, questions about diversity and inclusion. They found that the Bray had never done a tremendous amount around outreach to people of color, potters of color, and that maybe, perhaps, the number of makers of color were, was a small number and, and they didn't know how to reach out to that network. And so I was invited, and I said that if I come, I don't want to be a, a token maker. I want to find a way to be deeply involved in the activity of the Bray, and, um, and let my presence there be a signal to others that the Bray is open for business and excited about having new kinds of makers present. Right. And so I decided that I would bring my band, the black monks, and that I would use the, the month or month and a half that I was uh, there, along with the time that I, I spent creating this kind of Afro Mingay workshop where uh, residents of the Bray worked with me to make a body of work that I would use this time to demonstrate how ambitious a maker could use the Bray as a kind of tool for Uh, Not only diversity and inclusion uh, tactics, organizational tactics, but really a tool to advance one's practice, you know. So there I was, you know, with the monks, and we decided that we would use the architecture of the Bray, including many of its abandoned buildings, its old kilns, the brick manufacturing plant, which was no longer active, In the old conveyor belts and in the cooling houses and storage buildings, we would use all these buildings as sites to make this film A Clay Sermon. And A Clay Sermon was essentially a sermon. It was an amalgam of musical moments that had happened over uh, about a week and a half where me and the monks were making music, and then I was left at the Bray by myself for another two or three days, and then the sermon became very specific. Um, It was me reflecting on nature, reflecting on the big sky of Montana, and then ultimately singing and talking about the nature of ceramics, uh, using the black pulpit vernacular as the delivery style. And so this film, it's a film that I've wanted to make for a long time. It includes a lot of um, biographical, kind of historical footage of me as a young maker. It includes um, moments where I'm looking at um, uh, clay diggers in India, diggers in Japan, um, Shoji Hamada, my, you know, I think the Western uh, Japanese hero, uh, the hero for so many Western potters is, is this guy Shoji Hamada. And then, you know, maybe uh, an attempt at the emotional ecstasy that I feel in spirituality, how that is connected to the ecstasy that I feel when I'm making. And so I can't thank the Archie Bray enough and I look forward to having a kind of ongoing dialogue with with the organization. But I also feel like it's a moment where ceramics is being taken seriously and in new ways. And I'm very, very excited that the museum community and the art community is excited to graft this material into the lexicon of contemporary art.
1: Theaster, thank you so much for your wonderful insights into the exhibition and your work. And I look forward to carrying on this conversation with you here in London.
2: Thank you so much, Lydia. I'll see you soon.
1: We now hear from Jason Young,
0: an Associate Professor of History at the University of Michigan, who teaches and researches in the fields of 19th century U.S. history, African-American history and the African diaspora. He is currently co-curating an exhibition on the legacy of African-American potters from Edgefield that will feature a number of jars by David Drake, due to open at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York in September 2022.
3: My name is Jason Young and I'm an Associate Professor of History at the University of Michigan. I'm also a co-curator with partners at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York and the Museum of Fine Arts Boston of a traveling show that focuses on the legacy of enslaved and newly freed black potters from Edgefield, South Carolina. The Astor Gates has selected a storage jar by David Drake. The Astor sees these jars as almost having a brand identity that set them apart from anonymous jars made in Lewis Miles pottery. Edgefield, South Carolina was one of the centers of ceramic production in the United States during the 19th century. The region's rich clay deposits made possible the production of a vast array of wares, from monumental storage jars to everyday utilitarian vessels. The virtuosity of David Drake's jars attests both to the strength and dexterity of his hand, but also, even more so, to his intellectual and artistic ingenuity. In the very act of inscribing his name on his wares, he was committing an illegal act, as literacy was forbade by law under slavery's brutal regime. Add to this the biting, though deft, political commentary that one finds in his rhyming couplets, and you realize in David Drake not only a maker, but a mind hard at work.
1: The Esther has also selected a face jug from around 1850. It's attributed to the same community of potters in Edgefield, South Carolina, but it's very small compared to the storage jar and doesn't appear to have a functional purpose. Could it have had a ritual purpose? Does it relate to African traditions such as minkisi? And could British face jugs have also been a possible model?
3: This is one of the most fascinating fields of emerging inquiry related to Edgefield pottery. We know that a significant number of people who found themselves enslaved in area potteries were originally from West Central Africa, where the Congo minkisi tradition was widespread. At the same time, several European goods, including British Toby jugs, emerged as much-desired commercial items in West Africa during the late 19th century. We're learning more and more about the uses of these items, and I'm convinced that much of this material exceeded mere utilitarian use and was, in fact, deployed for spiritual purposes.
1: Jason, your co-curator Ethan Lasser organized Theaster's exhibition to Speculate Darkly, Theaster Gates and Dave the Potter at the Milwaukee Art Museum in 2010. The Esther has mentioned that it was important for him to have a named black potter to ground him as an African-American working in clay. How has Gates in turn paved the way for David Drake's story to be told in
3: the 21st century? The work of the Esther Gates has been a crucial part of the resurgent interest in David Drake. I'm most impressed by the exploding of old traditional boundaries that Gates' work represents. This is true not only of the show at Whitechapel, but also of Gates' larger takeover of London in recent weeks and months. Clay is, to be sure, a product of the hand. But David Drake made clear that working in pottery requires a kind of technical skill and intellectual ingenuity that traditionally has not been recognized and celebrated, certainly not for an enslaved potter from rural South Carolina. In this way, Gates' work is, to my mind, a provocation of traditional curatorial practices, a a kind of clarion call to open the doors of these and other spaces to include the all of us.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Here Now. You can find all of our other episodes online at www.whitechapelgallery.org on the Bloomberg Connect app, as well as iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher and SoundCloud. Don't forget to visit the exhibition, The Gates, A Clay Sermon, from the 29th of September 2021 until the 9th of January 2022. Bye for now.